set up the series of sermons and lectures that we now call the Boyle Lectures. The first of those were given by the young Richard Bentley in 1692 at simply the age of 29. But also at that time, in those two years, two very influential volumes were being published by John Ray based on lectures that he gave in Cambridge. So natural theology was something that was in the intellectual air as well as being in the religious air. It was only five years since Newton's Principia appeared in 1687. And what Bentley decided to do amounted to a sea change in the way that natural theology was presented and fashioned. Previously, the focus of natural theologians had been upon the multiplicity of the outcomes of the laws of nature, the fortuitous coincidences of those outcomes that appeared to create an environment tailor-made for life and for our sort of it in particular. But what Bentley decided to do was to take information that he'd gleaned from more informal versions of Newton's Principia to create a form of design argument and natural theology that was based not upon the outcomes of the laws of nature, but upon the forms of those laws themselves. Newton was the first to create an extensive system of universal laws of nature. And Bentley engaged, of course, in correspondence with Newton in order to learn more carefully and more clearly what Newton's views were about the issues he intended to raise in his lectures. Newton clearly approved of this enterprise, and the famous letters to Bentley are among the most interesting pieces of informal scientific intuition that exist from that period. Well, uh, Bentley recognized the scope of Newton's creation for what his enterprise required. He was, of course, a classical scholar, Later on, he would go on to become master of Trinity College, like Lord Rees. Uh, fortunately, Lord Rees is a much more enlightened master of Trinity College than Bentley ever was, and certainly will not be following the course of action that Bentley embarked upon in his engagement with the fellows. Uh, they failed over many years to have him removed, and to their chagrin, he eventually died in his bed in the college. Well, they were probably pleased he died, but uh, not in the college. <clears throat> well, Bentley took his cue from, in effect, new physics of his time. And we're going to do the same. We're going to look at what some of the new ideas in cosmology have to say about our place in the universe. <clears throat> well, like Bentley, we know that the universe is big. But what Bentley didn't know, and we do, is that it's also getting bigger. Since the late 1920s, we've known that the universe is expanding, that distant parts of the universe, distant clusters of galaxies, are receding away from one another at ever-increasing speeds. And that introduces to cosmology uh, a complexion of the universe which we might call an evolutionary one that things are in a state of change. The universe isn't like a watch in the sense that Paley once tried to persuade us in 1802. It's not like a watch because it isn't finished 
at the level of the astronomical phenomena. It is still changing, it is still developing, it is still exploring all the potential that's possible for it to visit. And in this picture, we're seeing here some measure of the size of the universe as it expands against time in billions of years. And here is the expanding universe and the unfolding trajectory of its history. And that trajectory means that at different times, conditions are different. When the universe is small, it's hot and dense, and too hot in its first quarter of a million years for any atoms to exist. Today, it's relatively cool and sparse, just a few degrees above absolute zero. And in between, as it's expanded, it has first of all allowed the first atoms to form, then molecules, then great islands of material condense out to form what we now call galaxies, and within them, stars, planets, and ultimately people can form. In the future, the long-range forecast looks rather bleak. The sun and the solar system around it will undergo uh, an irrevocable energy crisis. If our descendants wish to survive, they better move elsewhere. But ultimately, wherever they move to will suffer the same fate. And the long-range forecast of the universe is bleak for habitation and for life. Similarly, if you look back early enough, the universe is not an abode to support life. There's a short interval of cosmic history, a niche of time during which conditions allow life as we know it and complexity in any chemical form to exist. And the fact that we live rather close to, uh, we live within that habitable niche is of course no coincidence. We live about 13.7 billion years after the apparent beginning. Well, those enormous periods of time seem very strange. A few years ago, I was shopping in my supermarket and I discovered that these enormous periods of time had even infiltrated the commercial world of Sainsbury's. On the shelf, there was a sachet of uh, salt. It had written on the side, uh, this salt uh, is over 200 million years old extracted from the mountain ranges of Germany. Best before April 4th, <laughs> 2003. <laughs> well, this unfolding trajectory of evolution in the universe is linked to our own existence in unexpected ways. The elements of chemistry that you need for any type of complexity things that are heavier than helium and hydrogen gases don't appear ready-made in the universe. They don't come from the apparent Big Bang beginning. They're made in the stars by a sequence of nuclear reactions that are long and slow. And they amount to combining helium with helium to make beryllium, beryllium with helium to make carbon, and then carbon with helium to make oxygen, and so on. And when stars reach the end of their lifetime and explode and die. These life-supporting elements are dispersed around space and ultimately find their way into rocks and debris and planets and you and me. So all the carbon nuclei in your bodies have at some stage been through a star, perhaps more than once. But this long process takes time, lots of time. 
Nearly 10 billion years of time is required to produce the building blocks of living complexity. And so we begin to understand why it's no accident that we find the universe to be so old. We need to live in a universe that's enormously old in order to have enough time to make the building blocks of any living complexity. A universe that was significantly younger than the one we find ourselves in today could not create the basic building blocks of life and mind of any sort. You might have thought a universe the size of our Milky Way galaxy with its 100 billion stars and maybe as many planetary systems would be a pretty good economy-sized universe. But a universe the size of that Milky Way galaxy with its 100 billion stars would be little more than a month old, barely enough time to pay off your credit card bill, let alone evolve complexity and life. So we should not be surprised by the enormous antiquity of the universe and those times of order billions of years. We couldn't exist in a universe that was significantly younger. <clears throat> and because the universe is also expanding, its age is inextricably bound up with its size. The enormous size of the universe is seen at once to be another consequence of its age. A universe that has to be billions of years old has to be billions of light years in size. Paradoxically, we could not exist in a universe that was significantly smaller than the one we find ourselves in. This is a consequence of the expansion. So although the enormous size of the universe may be a reason to suspect that life exists elsewhere, the universe would have to be pretty much as big as it is to support just one lonely outpost of life on Earth. So philosophers of the past, <clears throat> the Bertrand Russells of the early 20th century, for example, always regarded the vastness of the universe as an indication of its antithesis to the development and support of life, that it was, in a sense, disteleological in structure. Modern astronomy turns this judgment on its head. We see that the vastness of the universe is a necessary condition for the development of life within it. <clears throat> the great age and therefore size of the universe that we need for these reasons also gives it another very strange property. The universe is almost empty. There's nothing in it to speak of. It's just empty space. If you take any ball of material and you expand it greatly, it becomes more and more sparse, less and less dense as it becomes larger. If you took all the material in the universe, smoothed it out into a uniform sea of atoms, there would be just one atom in every cubic meter of space. No laboratory of physics in the world could make a vacuum that's anywhere near as evacuated as that. So the universe is mostly just empty space. We and everything else within it, from that perspective, are just a minute trace element. If we decide to lump that density together in more interesting combinations, instead of having an atom in every cubic meter, we would run into a planet like the Earth every 10 light years, 
a star like the Sun every thousand light years, and a galaxy like the Milky Way every 10 million light years. So you begin again to see why <coughs> extraterrestrials are not queuing up on our doorstep to talk to us. The enormous distances between planets, between stars, between galaxies, the insulation of different sites where life can develop from each other is a consequence of the tiny density of material in the universe, which is another consequence of its enormous age and enormous size that are needed for life and complexity to develop. <coughs> another property that follows of our universe, as I was always trying to tell our children, our universe is cool. <laughs> if you expand a lot, you will cool down a lot. So the very low temperature of our universe today is a reflection of the enormous amount of expansion that's taken place over 14 or so billion years. <clears throat> this low temperature has a dramatic consequence. We may not see uh, this astronomical picture very well. This projector seems to make us want to see through a glass darkly. Uh, but this is a picture of our next-door neighbor galaxy, M81, taken by a Spitzer telescope. Our own galaxy would look rather like this if we were to see it from outside. But what's most interesting to this picture, if you're a cosmologist, in some ways, is not the galaxy, but the black, dark night sky all around. The dark night sky is the first interesting cosmological observation that was ever made. And it was made at a time not too different from the inaugural time of these lectures by Edmund Halley. Halley asked the question, why is the sky dark at night? First, you might tell him, well, you need to get out more. <laughs> you need to talk to people. Notice the sun. But the answer to the question is profound. Halley couldn't find the answer. It has nothing to do with the sun. If you look out into the Forest, for example, your line of sight everywhere ends on the trunk of a tree. Halley wondered why it wasn't the same when he looked out into the universe. Why didn't his line of sight end everywhere on the surface of a star? Surely there's enough of them, maybe even an infinite number of them. The whole of the sky should look like the surface of the sun all the time. We only found the answer to this question when modern cosmology revealed the expansion of the universe. The enormous expansion, the tremendous cooling, means that there's too little energy in the universe today to illuminate the night sky. If we turned all the matter in the universe into radiation just like that, all that would happen is the temperature would rise from three degrees above absolute zero to about 15 degrees above absolute zero, and nobody would notice. There was a time when the sky was bright, but it was a long time ago. It was when the universe was just a quarter of a million years old, greatly smaller than today, when the temperature was a thousand times greater, and then the whole sky was illuminated. But today, because of the age and the size that we need to find in our universe, if we're to be alive within it, we necessarily find the sky to be dark. So we've discovered, through the eyes of modern cosmology, a number of interesting and counterintuitive things. That a life-supporting space, a life-supporting universe, 
besides being almost empty, big and old, dark and cold. These are the properties that we require if life of any complex sort is to be possible in the universe. Long ago, before astronomy came on the scene in the 20th century, these would have been regarded as features of the universe quite antithetical to life, indicators that somehow life was a mere accident or trace element in the universe. Modern astronomy turns that perspective, in some sense, on its head. We see these strange features of the universe that look so peculiar at first are essential features if life of any sort is to exist within it. So things are often quite, not quite what they seem. These life-averse features of the universe turn out to be essential prerequisites for complexity of any sort. Well, there's more to the universe than just being big and getting bigger. Different sorts of universe are possible, and two are shown here. You can have universes which are rather agrophobic, which expand and keep on expanding forever. You can have ones that are a little more claustrophobic, that one day stop expanding, reverse, and start to contract back towards a big crunch. And in between, there's a sort of British compromise universe that just manages to expand fast enough to keep going forever. And that's interesting to us because our universe is tantalizingly close to that critical divide. Again, in some sense, this is not entirely surprising. Universes that try to deviate too far in one direction or the other from the critical divide end up lifeless and uninteresting. Rush away up here and you will expand so fast that material can't beat the expansion to condense to form stars and galaxies and carbon. Run away too far down here and you'll run into a big crunch before the show even opens. So in a general way, we understood why it's not surprising that we live close to that divide. But such an argument's not enough to explain why we live so tantalizingly close to the divide that we're unable really to tell on which side we lie and haven't been able to for a long, long time. Another feature of the expanding universe that puzzled people for a long time until uh, particularly until 1967, is that if you look at this expansion in different directions, it proceeds at the same rate in every direction to very high precision. When this was first discovered in 1967, the precision was a part in a thousand, at least. We now know the precision is about two parts in a hundred thousand. So you can think of the universe as an expanding sphere to very high precision. This is a puzzle because it's so much easier to make universes that expand very, very differently in different directions. It's, there are many more ways to be irregular than there are to be regular. <coughs> and lastly, although there's that regularity in the universe, it has a certain smoothness from one place to another and from one direction to another, there is also a graininess. And that graininess, it's present at a level of about a few parts in 100,000 it's again essential to the whole story that leads to us, because it's those graininesses that amplify and turn into the galaxies and the stars, the lumps and bumps 
which we reside upon and around. Without some graininess, those lumps and bumps were never formed. That physical process was first revealed in those letters from Newton to Bentley. Newton pointed out the tendency of gravity to make things that are a little bit lumpy become a lot lumpy. And in fact, in the last of those Boyle sermons that Bentley gave in the first year, uh, he departed very, in a very interesting way from his general focus upon the regularities and the laws of nature to discuss the problem of the irregularities of nature mountain ranges, things that don't fit the patterns of symmetry and perfection, and how they're important in the makeup of the world and also appreciated by our aesthetic sense. So in the structure of our universe, we're interested both in regularity and in regularity, in the laws of nature and the flaws of nature. Well, these puzzles, the puzzle of the special expansion rate of the universe, its blindness from one direction to another, its overall smoothness, and its little degree of graininess, were features that all suddenly appeared to have a single explanation in a new perspective on the universe that emerged at the beginning of the 1980s. And that perspective has become known as the inflationary universe. The word, of course, derived from economic conditions that existed in the world in the early 1980s. Uh, and the idea of this theory is very simple. Here's our picture again. The versions we looked at before had a universe expanding in this concave sense. The trajectory moved over in that arcing sense, indicating the universe was decelerating. Inflation is a simple idea that there was some brief interlude in the very early history of the universe where its deceleration switched to acceleration. <clears throat> there was a surge in expansion that resulted in the universe becoming much larger than it otherwise would have become by any given time. And in so doing, the expansion is driven tantalizingly close to that critical divide and provides a natural explanation as to why we find it so today. <clears throat> this idea was not an arbitrary one. At that time, particle physicists had begun to explore new varieties of theory in which unusual types of matter field were predicted to exist, which if they were in the universe in this early time, would exist for a while and then decay away into ordinary radiation and material. But while they were around, they would indeed produce this surge of expansion. After they decay away, normal service is resumed and the universe continues to expand in the way that we see today. Here's another cartoon version of the same type of picture, which gets across a vital ingredient of this scenario. Here is us today at St. Mary Le Beau, and with a perfect telescope, we could see only out to this distance about 14 billion light years. There hasn't been time since the beginning of the expansion for light to reach us from farther away. So we call that region within our cosmic horizon the visible universe. There's much more universe, no doubt, beyond, and tomorrow we would be able to see another light day's worth of universe. 
<clears throat> if we run the clock backwards in time, we can ask how small is the region out of which our entire visible universe has expanded. And the problem with the old pre-inflationary picture of the universe was that that patch out of which our whole universe emerged was always required to be far too large for us to make sense of what resulted. So large that there was never time for light signals to travel from one side to the other, for smoothness to be produced, for the expansion rate in different directions to be coordinated. And no way for any process to seed little grains and fluctuations in a similar way everywhere within it. Inflation solved that problem. Its surge of expansion enabled the whole of our visible universe to be grown out of the image of a region that was small enough for everything to be coordinated by light signals, for there be enough time for one side of the region to be coordinated with another. So this theory gave us at once an explanation as to why our whole visible universe on the average is so smooth. It carries with it, <coughs> as it were, the genetic code of a single fluctuation which is coordinated by signals, by radiation moving from one side to the other. The acceleration drives it close to that critical divide. And in so doing, it ensures that the expansion proceeds at the same rate in every direction with very high precision. But what happened next was really rather fascinating and brings us to the heart of the topics of interest to this lecture. First of all, it was recognized that this tiny patch that would create a whole visible universe will not be perfectly smooth. There must always be some fluctuations, some little statistical variations, perhaps of quantum origin, present. And we know what they are. We can apply our mathematical understanding of high-energy physics to predict their form and also then to predict what will happen to them when the expansion stretches them. And they will show up in the radiation in the universe today. They will leave their footprint in the temperature variations of the radiation that come towards us from every direction in the sky when we point our satellites from above the Earth. And in the last few years, NASA, and in coming years, the European Space Agency, have been hunting for those fluctuations at enormous expense and with great skill. And here is a map, again rather faint, I fear, of the pattern of temperature variations found by the WMAP telescope on the sky. The variations in color represent deviations above and below the mean temperature of the radiation in the universe. And if you're a statistician, an analysis of this picture will give you a detailed statistical description of the appearance of our sky. And that's what you require to test whether this extraordinary idea about the inflationary phase of the universe is something that ever happened. And here's the test so far. Sitting along here is some measure of the changes in color on the picture that we just looked at. The variations in the temperature from place to place and along here is a measure of their angular size on the sky, how big they are. 
The full moon is about half a degree in size on the sky. So this is the scale of the full moon. And you can see the predictions of this theory lead to a very characteristic ringing like the bells we heard beforehand. There is a great peak and then a dying away of the oscillations of the variations in the radiation temperature and energy. And these black dots show you the state of the data gathered by the satellite. The impressive thing is that there really is a remarkable correlation between the predictions and the theory. So there is surprisingly good observational evidence that in the past of our observable universe, there was an experience of this surge of rapid expansion that we call inflation. And these observations are allowing us to test directly a theoretical prediction about what the universe must have been like when it was 10 to the minus 35 of a second old. However, this theory that we can test in this way, we hope with ever greater precision, we can do other things also besides just look at those color variations, also leads to much more outrageous and unusual predictions about the structure of our universe and our place within it. The first lesson it teaches us is that geography is a much more complicated subject than when we were at school. You see, we focus just now on one little patch of the universe, the piece that was once the small contracted image of the whole observable universe that we see today. And we know from what we saw earlier, we require that patch to have expanded a lot and for a long time in order that it give rise to a region here that's old enough and large enough for stars to form, explode, die, produce carbon and other life-supporting elements. But in reality, the whole universe may be infinite certainly a good deal bigger than that one patch. And so we might envisage the situation when inflation occurs as rather like a tiny foam of bubbles that's then randomly heated. Some of the bubbles expand a lot, some only a little, some not at all. We have to find ourselves in one of the bubbles that's expanded enough to allow enough time for the stars to make their carbon. But what we predict here is the geography of the universe is extraordinarily complex. That if we could see beyond our visible horizon, if we could take a godlike view of the whole and were not limited by the finite speed of light, we would find the universe to be extraordinarily different in structure compared with how we find it within our horizon. Now, there have always been skeptical philosophers who would warn you against extrapolating from what we see in the visible universe to what it might be like in the parts that we can't see. But for the first time, we have a positive reason to expect the universe to be quite different in structure beyond our visible horizon than it is within it. And by different, we don't only expect things like the density or the temperature or the graininess of the universe to be different, but rather fundamental things like the number of forces of nature, even the number of dimensions of space that become large, the values of some constants of nature 
some of these quantities, some versions of this theory, are predicted to fall out differently in different regions. Well, so much for geography. Uh, what we're seeing here uh, in the Andy Warhol type version of the universe is that once upon a time when we thought there were many different disjoint regions of the universe that we couldn't access beyond our horizon, that they were probably all essentially the same, like this collection of Warhol beef soups. They're all the same cans. But just as later on Warhol became much more imaginative and expansive in his imagination and produced uh, soup cans where they're all different. So some are mushrooms, some are beef, some are cheese, some are chicken. We face the situation where different bubbles in that chaotic version of the inflationary universe have quite different structures. Well, it's bad enough find, finding out that geography has changed since you were at school, that it's not enough to know six rivers of Africa to pass. But we discover also that history has become an extraordinarily more complicated subject because of cosmology. After that chaotic spatial consequence of the inflationary universe was recognized, it was then realized by Alex Palenkin and Andre Linde in the United States that inflationary universes possess an instability that renders the whole inflationary process apparently eternal and self-replicating. If we focus on one of these little bubbles here, one of these patches that's undergone inflation, then it necessarily creates within itself the conditions needed for little sub-regions of itself themselves to undergo explosive inflationary expansion. So the process is self-replicating. Those regions inflate, they produce within themselves the conditions for further inflation to occur. And the whole process continues apparently without end to the future. Again, each one of these little bubbles in this process is allowed to take on rather different conditions to the others. How do we see ourselves in this scenario? We inhabit one of these bubbles in this so-called multiverse of possibilities. Our universe is one region in a potentially infinite universe that's very diverse and different from place to place and also from time to time. The issue of the beginning of the universe is also muddied by this scenario. You see, if we ask, did the universe have a beginning, it is quite possible for our piece of the universe to have a beginning. It can be a dramatic Big Bang type beginning out of infinity or a more quiescent one out of finite fluctuations. But it would still be possible for the whole multiversal process to have neither a beginning nor an end. So each piece of the multiverse may have a beginning, some parts may have an end, yet the whole process be eternal. So this is a strange scenario which uh, this inflationary universe impresses upon us. It wasn't looked for, it's a byproduct of the successful study of what happens to one of these patches.
One of the concerns about it is, can you test such an idea? Well, uh, you might be able to. It could be that a theory which gives rise to this replication process leaves a particular observable stamp upon each member of the multiverse. And if that stamp is not present, then the replication process could not occur. So in that sense, just by looking in our patch and not finding that stamp, we would falsify such a replication process and all the other parts of it. But on the other hand, <coughs> perhaps there is no way to test whether we're part of this infinitely more complex scenario. After all, uh, you don't have to not like Karl Popper to regard it as really extremely anti-Copernican if you regard the universe as having been constructed for our convenience. So we can test and try out every theoretical idea that we might have about it. There is no reason why every true theory of the universe should allow us at this time and in this place to be able to critically test it. Well, one of the things that we see from this developing picture of the multiverse is that it greatly muddies this distinction between the laws of nature and the outcomes of those laws, which that first Boyle lecture by Bentley sought to distinguish. The laws of nature we're in the habit of recognizing are typically surprisingly simple, highly symmetrical, and really rather few in number. We think that just four fundamental laws of electricity, magnetism, radioactivity, nuclear forces, and gravity are enough to explain the rules of cause and effect that dictate what goes on in the universe. And maybe one day there'll be only one such law, a so-called theory of everything, perhaps of a string theoretic variety. But the simplicity of the laws of nature is really something that's a little deceptive. You see, the outcomes of the laws of nature are much more complicated, far less symmetrical, far more difficult to understand than the laws themselves. And sometimes in science, we find that we can find a theory, we can find the laws, but we cannot find the outcomes, we cannot find the solutions. You can understand rather easily why this is the case. If I balance this pointer vertically on my hand, then it's very symmetrical in its position. If I let go, it becomes subject to the law of gravity. The law of gravity is symmetrical and highly democratic, and in perfectly vacuum-like conditions at zero temperature, there is an equal probability that this pointer will fall in any direction. Pointers don't tend to fall in the direction of Bow Bells or towards the Bank of England or Paris. There is an equal probability in perfect conditions that it will fall in any direction. But once it falls, the symmetry of the law is broken and this outcome has picked out a particular direction in the universe. And what we see in this type of multiverse picture is so many of the things that were once regarded as irrevocable, unchangeable laws of nature 
features like the values of the constants of nature, the number of forces of nature, have suddenly become outcomes rather than fundamental laws. Here are some of the <coughs> symmetry breakings, some of the outcomes of that inflationary production of different regions of the universe. You might imagine that there are a collection of different resting places, rather like a corrugated iron roof, and when you throw a ball in the air, like the National Lottery uh, selection process, the ball will end up falling into one or other of those resting places. And as the universe expands in different places at different rates, in different parts of the universe, the ball will fall into different resting places, different ground states, as physicists call them. But those ground states are really very different in what they require of the universe where that happens. They will determine how many forces of nature there are. This world may have just gravity and no other forces. This world may have six dimensions. This may have three. So this process creates a vast diversity of possibility in the outcomes of the chaotic and eternal inflationary process. And we see ourselves <coughs> as part of a vastly more complex process. And we appreciate that the conditions that are needed to allow life to develop in one of these patches, say the one that we reside in, are really very special and unusual indeed. And so we then recognize that in this type of scenario in modern cosmology, that all we can ever hope to predict about our situation in the universe is something that involves probabilities. We might like to know how likely is it that things fall out in a way that allow planets like the Earth to develop, elements like carbon to exist, or consciousness to develop. And that creates a big problem for us, because you might have imagined that mathematicians could simply go away and take these theories and compute those probabilities. But the situation is, again, not quite what it seems. So far, nobody has been able to compute such probabilities. We don't know how to do it. Maybe one day we will. But even when we do, the answers that we determine uh, are really somewhat confusing, or are likely to be. You see, suppose that we make a prediction about some quality of one of those patches in the universe that undergoes inflation. <clears throat> what would you be interested in about that prediction? Would you be interested in the sort of bubble that is most likely? Would you be interested in the bubble that's least likely? You see that if this was the outcome of the calculation, universes over here would be the most probable. But suppose that we graphed onto this picture what would be the probability of universes that allow complexity of any sort to develop. So suppose we ask, which are the universes where stars are possible, or any elements at all? And we might find, indeed, that this is a very, very narrow range indeed. And it may be a highly improbable part of the probability distribution. But no matter how improbable it turned out to be, we would have to find ourselves 
inhabiting that narrow niche of possibilities because we could exist in no other. Well, we've mentioned already, we'll mention again in closing, did the multiverse have a beginning? Well, we don't know. We've got all sorts of different options. Our own universe <coughs> within the multiverse may have had a beginning. It may not have had a beginning. And it could be that the multiverse itself had no beginning, or it could have had a beginning, or neither need have a beginning. We have these three curious options. In all cases, the idea of a beginning is a rather tantalizing one for cosmologists, just as for everybody else. A conventional beginning to our universe always seemed to undergo or require the requirement of some physical infinity in Aristotle's ancient sense, an infinity of a physically measurable quantity like temperature or density or interaction strength. And what's our view of that today? Well, if you're a physicist of a more conventional sort, whenever an infinity pops up in your calculation, you take it rather like the remark on your old school report, must try harder. That it's a signal that somehow something has gone wrong in the formulation of a theory, that if you had only included some extra detail, the infinity would be exercised and it would become simply a very, very extreme but entirely finite effect. And that would still be the attitude of people working in fundamental particle physics to the appearance of a beginning to the universe in time. Cosmologists are more accommodating to infinities. They're generally more willing to admit the possibility of singular events. And what could be more singular than the beginning of the universe? The centers of black holes and the beginning of the expanding universe might be the one place where you would be happy to allow something infinite to occur that would begin the expansion of everything out of nothing. So we have a number of completely different attitudes towards those sorts of beginnings to the universe which you will find on offer amongst cosmologists today. So what have we seen? What's its relation to the big questions of ultimate concern that these lectures focus upon? That within the last 20 years or so, there's been a dramatic change in cosmologists' perspective on the universe. I showed you how, by a careful consideration of what's going on in the expanding universe, you discover that the huge distances of space and extents of time are by no means divorced from ourselves here on Earth. We are intimately entwined with the conditions within the universe that gave rise to the building blocks of living complexity. And that insight enables us to understand why the seemingly life-averse features of our universe are actually critical requirements for complexity and life of any sort, including our own. And then we've seen, in a less parochial way, how the inflationary perspective on the universe, underpinned by its careful observational testing within the part of the universe that we can see, 
leads to quite dramatic reconsiderations of our place within the universe as a whole. And indeed, a vast enlargement of our perspective of the universe as a whole. We see it is more complex in space, more complex in time. Our position within it is likely to be rather particular, rather special, and one that we might hope to understand more fully in the future. I hope Dr. Bentley, were he here, would feel that we were continuing to learn more about the universe, that the successors of Newton's perspective on the laws of nature have given us a perspective which is richer and more fascinating, more spectacular in many ways, that the universe is as complex as we can imagine even today, and I predict that it will turn out to be even more unpredictable and spectacular in its ultimate structure than we've even imagined by the present. Thank you.